0: Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Marvel Movie Minute. Today we're talking. Wait, what's. Oh, I'm not the host. I, I'm just a guest. Oh, sorry. You, got, you guys have the introduction. Right now? <laughs> Whoa. Interloper. Whoa. <laughs> Look, you put me back in the seat. It just feels so natural <laughs> to be talking to you guys again.
1: All right. Just like old times. Uh, welcome back, everybody, to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our fifth season, we are looking at Joe Johnston's 2011 film Captain America, The First Avenger. I'm Andy Nelson from the Next Real Film Podcast. And I'm Pete Wright. Prepare for pew-pew time. (laughs) Today we're talking about Minute 62, which begins with Jim Marita telling Dum Dum what's what, and ends with Schmidt hitting the alarm. As you heard back on the show, it's again Matthew
0: Fox (laughs) uh, from our Thor season. Hello, Matthew. It is good to be back. Um, it's funny because I was thinking it is – I loved getting to do all that research for um, Thor. Though, in honesty, I did like 30 percent of it and Andy did 70 percent. But it was really <laughs> fun getting out. D- dive into all the like Norse myths and stuff like that. But I had a moment of panic like three days ago when I saw this was coming up. I was like, oh, God, I haven't done the – I don't need to do the research. <laughs> I'm just the guest. <laughs> I'd say it also means I don't have to edit, but I always made Andy do all the editing anyway, so <laughs> that's, that's right. that part's easy. But yeah, it is. thank you guys for for inviting me back. I really do, do love getting to talk to you all.
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, and this is a fun minute. Uh, as Pete said, it's pew pew time.
0: Can I just say, is there any, like if this is Captain America, if this is like rah, rah Americanism, is there anything more American than someone saying, do you know how to fire that gun? It's a person <laughs> firing it anyway. Blowing something up, and the two of them going, "Okay, I guess that works." Like,
1: yeah, very, very much so. Very,
2: that checks out, definitely checks out. And they're going to turn around and get into a Ford truck.
1: So, (laughs) before all of that, uh, we're back in the uh, in the cell block in the barracks. We have we get to hear uh, uh, Jim Arida's retort to Dum Dum Dugan. Uh, I'm from Fresno, Ace, which is just (laughs) it is great. Uh, How did okay, so Matthew. Uh, I know you have thoughts. Let's let's hear them.
0: Yeah, I mean I think I think I said a lot of them last time, but it's, it 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 finishes the thought. It's the because I think what's behind that is this idea of this person doesn't look white. They don't look like an American to me. And I think when he come back, especially the fact that he, you know, he uses kind of like American lingo and is like, yeah, cuz he's from Fresno. He is, he is somewhere in his ancestry. He, you know, um, the the folks he who came to America didn't come from Europe, but they came to America just like Dum Dum Dugan's parents probably came or came to America at some point. Like he's just as American as anybody else in that group. And to, as much as I make fun of the you know Captain America rah rah Americanism, because as you can tell, I, I I have some critiques of the national mythos of this country. I do think there's something great about that idea that whoever comes here, you are American and we don't always live up to that ideal. But that's the whole point of Captain America. He's the last person who actually believes the ideals. And, and so I think that this scene is just such a great illustration of that. I wonder when we'll get just sort of culturally
2: over needing to present these arguments consistently on screen. Right. Like how many times will we have to have the, you know, the effective I'm from Fresno ace reveal? Uh, when, when will we be done with that? 50 years? I don't know. But they keep coming. They just keep coming.
1: Yeah, it's already been more than fifty years, and we're still.
2: I know fifty more. Right, that's what I mean. Like we're. I'm. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we got to look. We got to project way out.
0: I think that's very true, but I think as part of that argument, it happening in this movie is super important because I. One of the critiques I think you hear all the time now, especially shows like She-Hulk or like the new Star Trek or Star Wars stuff, is, oh, all of a sudden it's so woke. When did comic books get so woke? When did comic books get so political? I made a joke about this, but it's very true. Jack Kirby and Stan Lee, and you can argue about who had more, uh, input, they created this comic as two Jewish guys in large part, be- like Jack Kirby has said, he wanted to punch Hitler on, he wanted the most American person in the world. Mm-hmm. And because this is, this is before Pearl Harbor. This is when a whole bunch of the country is saying, no, 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 yes, it's terrible what's happening in Europe, but it's all Europeans, we shouldn't get involved, which a large part of that is because it's, it's Jewish people. It's Roma people. We don't care what's happening to them. They wrote this comic, this character, for many reasons. I mean, they mo- to, to make money and to sell comics. But a big part of it was to say, no, here in 1941, before Pearl Harbor, America needs to punch Hitler in the face. Right. And, and I, I'm focusing on that especially because Cap later makes the joke in this minute of, you know, don't worry, I've I punched Hitler 188 times. I think that's that, – like, again, sell Bonds is good, but I, what I love is that they have him punch Hitler in the face every time because to me that, that moment is just the quintessential nail in the coffin of these characters have been political from day one. That was an incredible – like people threatened to come to the building and beat Jack Kirby up and like yeah. Stan Lee and others had to restrain Jack Kirby. He wanted to go down to the parking lot and fight these neo-Nazis and the, these American Nazis himself because a lot of people were really upset. That, that Captain America is punching a foreign leader of a war America is not supposed to get involved with. So, right. okay, I got a little too into the rant there, but like, no, I think to good. me, this is in the context of all these discussions, you're right, Pete, like, I hope we get to the points where we don't need this in everything, but I think in Captain America, at least we're always going to need it because that is so much a part of, not just the characters I understand today, but all the way back to issue number one, right. what Captain America is about.
1: Yeah, and I mean, even just having Jim Morita serving in the u.s army i think that was important having a japanese american actually serving in the army working with the howling commandos like being one of them uh just all of these elements are kind of critical pieces to kind of showing that showing that that uh, view of what america should be um and so i i I think that's an important element that marvel is bringing
0: and i appreciate that as well because i I, I don't really know much about the character. I forgot that he's actually not just Asian. He's Japanese-American. Right. Yeah. Because, you know, this is the point in time when we're also at war with Japan and we're in a pretty shameful un-American act. America's locking up its Japanese-American citizens. Exactly. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, the fact that he's Japanese-American, especially from Fresno and wants to fight for the U.S., is it, it's a really important moment.
1: Uh, Jim Morita first appeared in Sergeant Fury number 38 in November 1966. So that was his uh, first appearance in the comics. And um I would I'm going to guess that neither of you are um uh perhaps followers astute followers of Kenneth Choi in films but Kenneth Choi plays uh Marita here in the film can either of you uh, guess anything that you may have seen him in Yeah
2: cuz I I do like uh him because he was this character in Agents of Shield he had a little bit in an episode he was also in um he was in uh spider man uh he had a bit in the spider man M- which one i don't remember which one was it the first one the second one uh he was he was a i think he was a principal or something at the school that sounds right and so he's he's been around uh for a bit um and I, I think every character he plays is a Marita. I think he's one of those actors who ends up playing a lot of Maritas for some reason. Obviously he's Jim Marita in Shield, but I think wasn't he also
1: a Marita in Spider-Man too? He is. He is principal Marita in Spider-Man Homecoming. <laughs> that is That's hilarious. hilarious. Yeah.
2: He was also he was also a Sons of Anarchy guy. Like he was also a a Uh, did a bunch of episodes in Sons of Anarchy. I don't think he was a Merida in in Sons of Anarchy. Henry Lin. He was Henry Lin in Sons
1: of Anarchy.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. I I, I would have no idea how to tell you what his top four are. I'm assuming this one.
0: This is going to be the same as with with last episode where I can't put the name to any of them. Yeah. But we're going to have four more instances like Sons Anarchy where you say the name, and I'm like, oh, of course, yeah, yeah he's that guy because right, he's right, got right. that face that you've just seen a hundred times.
1: Yep, absolutely. Um, weirdly, his IMDb—he's a person who's been in four. He has 49 TV credits, 28 film credits, um, plus you know short films, video games, all that sort of thing. But weirdly, and I don't know where the break is for IMDb to do this, but he only has three projects listed in his known for he has plenty of stuff that he should be known for so i don't really know why their algorithm only puts three in here but they are the wolf of wall street in which he played chester ming this film and spider-man homecoming so those are the three projects that imdb says kenneth choi is known for interesting yeah, I mean, he is he is a, a great character and he's a lot of fun here.
2: You know, I'm actually I now I've just opened it up and I it reminds me of another one. This is this is uh, another one. If you follow American Crime Story in the season, uh, uh, the 2016 season, he played Judge Lance Ito. And that was another one where I we noticed him because he's playing a uh, a real person in this whole season dealing with a real case. And it was of mm-hmm. some some note. Gotcha. Gotcha, yeah. gotcha. another face.
1: Well, I like him here, and uh, so now we're going to follow him and the rest of the troop as they run out. But first, I want to just uh, mention. So the hundred and seventh. So the way that this was set up is that a number of the hundred and seventh was taken as POWs, and and my question was because we have this moment where there's this uh, you know, exchange between Dum Dum Dugan and uh, Jim Morita, where clearly they hadn't seen each other before, even though they're all in this. They've been here for, I don't know, up to a month. You know, they were taken sometime in October. Today's November 3rd in, in uh, Marvel's timeline. Um, so they've all been here. It's not like there's hundreds. I mean, we haven't seen hundreds. But, I mean, there there are enough troops here where I think they would have seen each other in here. I don't know. But it made me wonder how big is – and so this is the 107th Infantry Regiment. And I was like, how big is that exactly? Trying to, trying to guess. And actually – I didn't realize this, but an infantry can be, you know, potentially like thousands of people. So I was like, oh, so maybe I was really uh, yeah. off in like thinking how like this was like 107th. Oh, you know, it's just, you know, a couple dozen people. No,
2: it's, that it's a lot. Possible yeah. They could all be in the same room and not know each other. That is right.
0: entirely,
1: yeah. entirely right. possible. So,
0: yeah, that, that was definitely the sense I got is that he may have seen this guy in the mess hall once or twice and kind of wondered, what's he doing here? Or, like he may have seen him or I mean. Let's be honest, one of the trademarks of the kind of like, like you said, like kind of not like super overt, but but clearly racism that's baked into him is the face blindness of like. Eh, so it's very possible he saw him once or twice and just doesn't connect it because, yeah, that's the they're all the same.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Um. So so
1: Steve, so that we've got another exchange here as Steve is trying to find Bucky now. And we had talked about this back in the in the camp because Uh, Colonel Phillips made it seem like Bucky was dead. Steve seemed to instantly pivot to, "Okay, well, let me go save everybody else then. And Phillips was against that. But then Steve was when we saw him talking to Peggy, he seemed to be again focusing on Bucky and the fact that he thinks Bucky may still be alive. And here it really shows that he has not given up hope that Bucky is not dead but that he will be able to find Bucky. Um, and so he's he's uh, he's going to go off on a search to find Bucky. Falsworth tells him there's an isolation ward in the factory, but no one's ever come back from it. I have no idea how anyone would know about this if no one's ever come back from it. Um, it's <laughs> that's what, a really good point. It's one of those lines. It's like, do you, so how do you know where they're going then? Uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe Zola said, takes them to the isolation ward. Yeah. and that's, yes. I,
0: I'm sure a guard would say like, you know, don't step out of line or else we'll put you in the isolation ward with your friend Bucky and he'll never come back. Some Something. Yeah. Uh- That's very generous. Hydra, if they can't put a guard in front of the prisoners, they're not watching <laughs> what people say, you know. Exactly.
2: You're a mercurial organism, Hydra
0: i know. loose lips free, Bucky. <laughs> wow, that statement's gonna be misinterpreted. Wow. But there you
1: go. <laughs> well, it's gonna be a shirt for sure. <laughs> that's right, that's right. <laughs> oh boy. Okay, so now I've got a question here. Steve gives some directions to the troops here. He says the tree line, he tells them where the tree line is. That's where he's gonna be. Go out fast and give him hell. I'll meet you there with anyone else I find. So Steve is going to go off to find anybody else, but presumably he's only looking for Bucky. And then he'll find, if he finds people along the way, he'll of course free them. Um, but then here's my question, because Gabe Jones says, wait, you know what you're doing? And Steve, this is where he has his line. Yeah, I've knocked out Adolf Hitler over 200 times. And then he runs off by himself. Does, do you think that, I mean, I, I I guess I struggle. I mean, I know little puny Steve has realized from July or from June to now that he has powers and that he can do a lot, but he hasn't really had the opportunity to do much as we've already discussed in yesterday's minute. There really hasn't been much in the way of training. Why does he think that he can just go do all of this by himself? Why doesn't he have, now he has a whole bunch of soldiers. Why doesn't he say, let's go find everybody else and get out of here as opposed to just sending them on their way so he can go by himself. Any, any thoughts on the way that this is put together here?
2: Well because he's super Steve now Andy. He's 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 super. Isn't that enough? Narrative narrative plot super?
0: I actually had a very different take on it and and to kind of explain this like I actually want to go back a bit to the whole concept and and curious how you talked about it in those earlier minutes cuz one of the things that I find a little weird is one of the things that Steve has very established is that he is completely selfless and willing to sacrifice himself even for people he doesn't like. You know, the, he doesn't jump on that grenade way earlier because all the other troops are being so nice to him. He does it because they're troops and he wants to save them. Yeah. So it seems a little weird to me that he has to find out that Bucky is one of the missing ones before he wants to go off on this mission. And and did you all talk about that at all? Because, like, I'm very curious if Bucky had come back safe, but a bunch of Bucky's buddies, would he still have gone off on this mission, do you think?
1: That's a great question. And and we didn't and I don't believe our conversation went to that as we were talking about it. So it's definitely worth talking about now. Like, you know, why is why is it only Bucky and the concern for Bucky that Steve has? I mean, again, in the in the tent, when he's talking to Colonel Phillips. It's not about Bucky. It's about saving everybody else. But then instantly, as soon as he's in the next scene talking to Peggy, it's back to Bucky. I want to go in to save Bucky. How do you know he's not dead? All of this sort of stuff. So it's very Bucky, Bucky, Bucky.
0: And I bring that up because I think that's why he goes alone, because he does think, like, I'm here to rescue the troops. He's self-aware enough to know that his desire to free Bucky is kind of going above and beyond, and I don't think he wants anyone else to risk their lives trying to do this. I think he's sort of like, "You're the troops. You got free. You should go get free. I'm the one who's going to do the stupid thing and double back to to run rescue the one guy who's buried like all the way back in the prison." And cause, so, because to, to me, it is a ve- it is that very like, "I'm the hero. I'm selfless. No one else should have to risk themselves," which is both honorable and kind of dumb. Um, but like, and, and to me, that's, that's, that is Steve right now. He's, he's very honorable and kind of a child, as you, as you put it, Pete.
1: But, it all, and lucky. <laughs> Let's just throw
2: that in there, too. He's also, he's also very lucky. I think that is, I think that is important, um, that, that Bucky is the instigating sort of emotional trigger that pulls him there, um, but I do see. I don't think I'd ever seen that sort of confusion of signals that he is uh, at once the patriot who wants to go do the right thing because it's the right thing, and the selfish child who needs to be to have a singular motivation to actually go do the right thing, which is his best friend. I, I've never, I've never really crossed the that duality before, and I it doesn't. I, I can, I can see how that. H- how that strikes sideways. Uh, I-, I do think that, again, the charitable read is those two competing uh, or or complementary instincts create just bigger fuel for his patriotic fire, right? Right. Just makes him run harder and faster.
0: I, I think that's a charitable way to look at it. I think uh, you all have convinced me of enough goodness of this movie that I'm going to be one more critique. <laughs> I-, I think it's also just like the writer had... The writer had a hard task of they want to establish both that he is this, I care about the little guy, whoever the little guy is, and I have a very specific platonic love because, you know, no matter what the shippers will say, that's not what they want to say in this movie, Right? Uh, even though I think they wound up saying it without meaning to, but that's another story entirely. <laughs> uh, but like they want to establish that he deeply loves and cares for his best buddy, Bucky. And that's a, I, like, I don't think it's a it's bad writing. As a I think that's a hard thing to do. But yeah, I think this is where the movie, the writing maybe stumbles a little bit. As you said, trying to establish those two different things at the same time.
1: Yeah. Do you think, though, that they could have done it? I mean, I, I, they, they're they writing, the, the writers here are very clearly writing for the gag, right? I mean, this right. whole thing is all about this joke when Jones says, wait, you know what you're doing? And Steve says, yeah, I've knocked out Adolf Hitler over 200 times. It's here for the joke. This is really right. why this moment is here. But I think that a more... Uh, like effective way for that story for this scene to be structured would would be for Jones to perhaps say wait we'll come help uh and Steve say you know what I think I can get this there are a lot of soldiers out front can why don't you all go out there and like yeah. clear the way for everyone else something like that so it's actually more instructive and now he's showing himself as a leader as opposed to just the guy who throws out one liners
0: Yeah, I I think that would really help. I think it would also help if he didn't know Bucky was still alive until he gets to the prison. Yes. Like, if he thinks Bucky is dead, but just some soldiers are alive, and he's like, I need to do this for Bucky, he goes to, like, rescue – because they're Bucky's guys. He goes to rescue them, and then he's like, oh, Bucky's still alive? Yeah. Okay, I'm going to go get him. But then, as you said, uh, Andy, everyone else go do the smart thing. This is my mission. I care about it. I think with those two additions, it all becomes much stronger. Yeah.
1: Uh, yeah. And that's, I, I think it would have made that moment of finding Bucky that much stronger. Like everything, I think, could have been so much stronger if he, if we didn't have him talking to Peggy about, you know, Bucky might still be alive. If he had just said, I've got to go save anybody who's out there. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so, yeah, it is what it is. Uh, uh, you know, it, they, it, it plays for laughs. It's fine. It works, but it could have been a much stronger structure here. And that's, and I think that's what I end up missing when I, when I see this, but. You know, it plays OK.
2: Well, because, you know, I mean, the the counterpoint to this is Cap is going even though he believes also that Bucky is dead. He's going in the name and spirit of Bucky and then gets that relief and surprise when he finds Bucky there. I thought you were dead. Oh, jubilant uh, yeah, you exactly. know, reunion. Uh, but instead, we get this kind of namby-pamby little um, competing message.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's frustrating.
2: Cap fights. In the ghost, in the name of the ghost of Bucky Barnes. Maybe that's, maybe it gets it, it, it less confusing later, right? When we know that Bucky Barnes has challenges with a cliff. And <laughs> the, so.
0: <laughs> the, though I will. Di- so I was already thinking I wanted to say the words, though I will die on this hill, which is now particularly unfortunate given uh, your last comment, <laughs> Pete. But I will die on the hill of. Yes, it's a silly throwaway line in the context it happens, but I think the line I've already punched Hitler so many times is absolutely essential so to the character and to the movie. Sure, like, yeah. Yeah. It could have framed much better, but keep that line. Yeah.
2: yeah. Well, and that's one of the hero lines that we love so much. I could do this all day. Um, yeah, I could, I've punched Hitler 200 times. Like he's – Cap is full of those lines and this, this is one of them in the list, It movie. is one of them.
1: Yeah. So to that extent, it works. It, it's fun for the character. It's fun for the type of movie that it is. But yes, it, there there could have been some some work done here. Uh, before we move on to the next moment, I will just say the way that Johnston visually puts the film together, th- like this set of minutes has some beautiful, beautiful lighting. Like when Steve runs off by himself and you've got that light that's kind of like broken up by all the bars uh, it's just – it's a gorgeous shot of just seeing kind of his silhouette running through those uh, those um, light beams there. It's its fantastic.
0: I'm actually going to ask a film world question because this is the kind of thinking that we got into. Uh, Andy, one of the things I really enjoyed when we did our Thor coverage is we were talking about how this was at the very start of the MCU. And so clearly they were starting to think there might be more movies, but they weren't – like most of the choices were about this being a movie onto its own. The end credits for this movie make clear that they're already shooting Avengers. Like they're all, they do, they are starting to have a plan. I'm wondering, do you think someone told Joe Johnson or, or the, the writer, I'm not sure if that is Joe or someone else, but someone at one point had said, Hey, listen, we really need you to play up Steve and Bucky because we, we, we want Bucky to die in this movie. Because we already know that we that if things work out and Avengers is a big success, we want to make the next movie about Bucky coming back. Like, do you think that thinking was already there and that maybe that's part of why they felt they really had to push the Steve Bucky relationship? I
1: would guess absolutely. I mean, you know, even with Thor, you know, the last film, like they already had the Avengers in the pipeline. They already had kind of shown that they could make some success with the first three films. and And while this film and Captain America were essentially filming – um, at the same time, uh, right into the Avengers. I mean, you know, that the scene with Hawkeye in the last movie was filmed um, likely uh, during, like, right at the very end, likely during the um, the time with um, uh, He Who Shall Not Be Named from the Avengers uh, film, and and the post credits. Like, he directed the post credit sequence as well. So all of that was really kind of conjoined. And so my my hunch is that. Feige had already seen the potential success of the franchise and that the audiences would come for it. And right. I think absolutely he was in a place where he said, you know what, there was this fantastic line where they rewrote Bucky as this Winter Soldier character. Let's build toward that. And I think the end, of like what happens in this film, I think absolutely shows that they had already kind of put those plans in place.
0: And I think given that, like, it doesn't really matter who we blame, but I, I think that does let me let the writer for this off the hook a little bit, just because I know that in, I, you know, one of the great things about the MCU is how they keep making sure that the movies set up the next ones and the TV, you know, everything sets up the next thing. But certainly I think we've had a number of instances and, and a number of writers have confirmed it that sometimes that outside interference of saying, hey, you need to play this up it causes problems. you know. I think it's one of the biggest problems with Age of Ultron when we get to that. And I think – so yeah. So the – I don't want to let the writer entirely off the hook but the idea that maybe there were – like the original script of this, they, they hadn't played up the Bucky and Steve part quite as much. And so someone said like, hey, what if we make his rescuing of the soldiers more about Bucky? Yeah. Uh, I'm completely yeah. headcanning this and making it up but it, it's plausible. It, yeah. Because we certainly know what happened with other movies. Sure. Right.
1: No. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, we have the, this troop. So Steve runs off by himself. Uh, all of these soldiers, the the that have been rescued, they all run outside. And now we're ec- on the exterior of the compound here. As we see soldiers fighting uh, Hydra troops, and it looks like Fallsworth, Dugan, and Jones kind of team up. And then we have uh, Dernier and Morita kind of going their own way. We have uh, Dugan hopping into a tank. They they call them in the script half tracks in the book. Uh, the art of Captain America. They call them mini-tanks, uh, so I don't know. I kind of like half-tracks. It's kind of a fun little name for them. Um, but then we get this little gag of uh, this joke as as they, as they uh, Dernier uh, knocks down this soldier and picks up his Tesseract gun, and Marina's just like, you know how to shoot that thing? And, of course, he shoots it. We've already kind of talked about this, and it's a fun moment. Uh, I want to use it, though, as our opportunity to do the IMDb game for Bruno Ricci, who is our actor, portraying uh, portraying, what's his name? Portraying Jacques Dernier. So Bruno Ricci, I don't know if either of you would be able to name anything that Bruno has been in. He is a French actor going to be very difficult, so I'm just going to tell you the four films.
2: <laughs> you see, I think you just convinced yourself that we're idiots on this subject. Like in that one <laughs> sentence, I'd like to play the game with you. Wait, I don't think you can do it. No, I'll just
0: tell you. <laughs> that's Pete. That's pretty Pete, much what I just did. We yeah. haven't gotten a single one right yet. No, we've <laughs> yeah. not gotten I a think single our one. Our reputation yet. is earned.
1: <laughs> it's yeah. I, what I've learned about these Howling Commandos is you two know nothing. <laughs> So, about these Howling About these exactly, very charitable, yeah, in my case. Yeah, yes, right, right. it is. Right. Bruno Ricci, uh, the French actor, plays uh, the four films uh, that IMDb says he's known for are Captain America, the First Avenger, Three Days to Kill, in which he plays Guido, Murphy's Law, in which he plays Luciano Ortega, and I don't even know how to say this, Un Et de Canicule. Is that anywhere close to correct? <laughs> Sure.
0: I, I got a C in seventh grade French, so I don't know.
1: Yeah, I'm not. I uh, I'm not going to be able to. Let me do a tr- translate here real quick and see. Um, it is a hot summer. Un et de canicule. I don't know. Un it It's E T E with an accent on both did, E's.
2: The accent, uh, accent aigu, uh,
1: gives you the et Here, I, I just did the little, the little see translate it speak. Yeah. Un de canicule. There. Yeah, that sounds right. You did Sound great. Like, a Nitte you did de Canicule. The a Hot Summer. De so that's his four films. Bruno Ricci as Dernier, who really has, has not had an opportunity to say much. This is a moment where the gag is all in his actions. He just looks dumbly at the gun after he's shot it. And Maria's like, okay, and they go off on their merry way.
2: So this is an interesting sequence because we introduce they they level it up right Uh, a shot after shot everybody runs out there's a lot of punching then there's some traditional uh, munitions right some machine gun fire but then I have a question
1: about that but go ahead yeah
2: okay then we do get some pew pew gun uh, before they actually get the tesseract gun there are pew pew shots going on in the background right and nowhere in those shots. Is there any sort of explosion that mirrors what they get out of the do you know how to hold how to shoot that? Right. It blows the building corner of the building off, but the earlier ones we don't see any of that. What is what's up with that?
0: Mm. Come on. My, my reading, which again plays into the, uh, the concept we said before, is somewhere on that gun there's a power dial of like, you <laughs> know, vaporize a person up to vaporize a building. Stun. It's all set to stun is what you're yeah, saying. No, up, no. no up it's set part. to vaporize <laughs> a person, but you're not set to vaporize the building. Okay. But the American's like, let's turn it to the maximum. Yeah, turn it let's the turn. Do it, try <laughs> something out.
1: <laughs> Crank it to 11. I
0: will say, though, that the actions of the Hydra soldiers in this kind of confirm what I was saying earlier about Cap, about this idea of, like, you put a super soldier serum into him. You don't need to teach him anything about being a soldier. He's going to be fine. Because clearly Schmidt has the same problem. Yeah. He gave guns. He gave Pew Pew laser guns to these soldiers. He just never taught them how to shoot. (laughs) Because the scene (laughs) opens with this wall of soldiers running out into four – I think it's four, maybe five – you know, Hydra soldiers with submachine guns all opening fire and one American soldier goes down. Like you have to work very hard to miss that much. Like I've seen enough other movies where, you know, the troops start storming in and then one machine gun mows them all down. Four yeah. guys with submachine guns miss that much? Like th- there's, there's just no target practice happening with either of these armies. Matthew,
2: Matthew, Matthew.
0: I, I, I have to say, you
2: know, I love you, but shame on you. Because you know as well as I do that all of these troops are just future stormtroopers. No, no they're, one they're can the, the, shoot this, in science fiction. No the one can shoot of stormtroopers. Oh, you're right. Mm-hmm. Long time ago. Thank you, Andy. Yes. That's a, a noble clarification. Uh, thank you. <laughs> See,
0: ha- have you seen the meme that's going around that says that clearly that was the proof that. All throughout the entire movies, the loving, peaceful empire was just firing warning shots. <laughs> and it's only because the rebels didn't respect that and would fire to kill. Oh, um, my God. That's fantastic. Okay.
2: So to extend the argument, <laughs> the Hydra soldiers
1: are generously just firing warning shots. Andy, well, one shot shooting definitely one. Goes, goes up into the air. One of the pew pew laser shots, yes. like it's diagonal, like up into the air. So clearly he wasn't even aiming at the troops. Right. Right, so, yeah. it, it, oh, I think that completely that's a thing. reframes the film. I think for that's the thing. Yeah, amazing. There you go. I will say, uh, after all the troops burst out of the doors, one of my favorite things to look at is Dum Dum Dugan as he just, just, I mean, he's all fist like he storms one soldier, punches him, and it is like just a fantastic, just a punch moment. Like it's, it's like a Dum Dum Dugan. Like I'm, I'm not even like a follower of Dum Dum Dugan in the comics, but it feels like. This is the way that Dum-Dum Dugan fights. Like he is just all fist yeah. as he runs around. He's a pugilist. Yeah. Yes, he is. Yeah. Yes, he is. So here I'll
0: make another comparison to earlier conversations we had because when we did Thor, we spent a lot of time talking about the Warriors 3. Yeah. And, and some ways that we didn't feel they were characterized well, especially in their fighting styles. In sort of comic book parlance, like the Warriors 3 and the Howling Commandos play very similar roles. You sure. know, They're the, yeah. the sidekick, the team for our hero. How do you think the way the Warriors 3 were portrayed stacks up against the Howling Commandos? This is so much better. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No. But it, 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 that's an interesting comparison because we do have that moment when they're uh, when they're fighting the frost giants, and we kind of see each of them have a little moment, you know, and, and see what they're doing. And and Sif is the one who, of course, isn't given a weapon that has any name, but still, like we see them each doing something that that shows us what they can do, even though it's never really expanded on beyond that um mm-hmm. i think to a large extent I, I suppose almost more so the howling commandos are are left with a sense of dum-dum Dugan is a guy who punches and we aren't going to get a whole lot of other separation between them beyond that and so uh, you know the, they'll have some quippy lines and stuff but and because this takes place in world war ii we're not ever going to see them again unless they go back and do like a a you know, a show about the howling commandos or something like this was an era specific group of people that have not returned other than in like photos at uh, the museum and stuff. And, and so it's interesting that at least again, not used well, but at least the warriors three have had opportunities to pop back in from time to time. So I, I don't know. I, I like these guys, but I do, I do think that um, they they could have found ways to give us, a little more uniqueness to them throughout their um, scenes in the film.
2: But that's really interesting, Andy, because I think that shows goes to the utility of these two uh, in comparison to one another with the Warriors three. It is much more, I think they were faced with a challenge of having only three warriors and that demands giving identity to each of them and a, a, you know, handling those, Uh, sort of short shrift means that you have a lot to complain about when the Warriors 3 aren't given enough. But the Howling Commandos I I think together make a singular entity that supports Captain America. And you don't necessarily need to give each of them identities because the Howling Commando identity is the snippy, fighty kind of thing. Each individual in the Howling Commandos is completely interchangeable. We have some Mm -hmm. of the like Dum Dum Dugans, but they could Kind of be any nameless, faceless, sarcastic soldier and still be a howling commando in service of the initiative of our primary hero.
1: And I think that's the difference to me and why I think this is better as a as a narrative tool. I mean, I just want to say. In context of the film, I and I guess my point was the Warriors three had a much more robust uh utility in the comics. They they were yeah. very much a part of Thor's story throughout the comics. The Howling Commandos, they are part of Sergeant Fury's line. And, and like it right. is a whole team that has their whole line and they do a lot more. And I'm yeah. just like in context of how they're used in the film. I, I feel like they're they. Yes, I agree with you, but they're just um for anyone who's a fan of the comics. They're not going to get much out of them.
0: But that's the point. I think there's one other major difference, though, which is that in Thor's movie, he spends most of the movie separated from the Warriors three. And we and we see the Warriors three on their own trying to deal with Thor with Thor's absence. And I think that kind of raises the stakes. It's it's asking more of the Warriors three. And the Warriors Three don't really meet that challenge because of the as we talked about some not great writing for how they're characterized. And, yeah. Whereas I think in this one, Captain America is all like for the. In, once we meet the Howling Commandos, they're always with Captain America. He's never fighting with them. They're never having to. They're, they're not having to do as much. They're there to be what I think kind of the you know the Warriors Three can be. Of they're fun. They're sidekicks. They get to you know have some tensions with each other. They get to make a nice toast. But there's not as much asked of them, so I think that they are much better because they're – like, it, it feels like they were much less ambitious with them in a way that I, I, I think was really good.
2: Yeah, I think it works. And, and I think I, to that point, a- a- Andy, to your point specifically, yes, I, we're really speaking just to the films. But I think that goes to how hard it is to adapt these kinds of characters or in the singular, this kind of unit uh, to for the screen out of the comics. And I think they set themselves up in Thor with a much bigger challenge. And I don't think they necessarily had to because, to your point, Matthew, I don't think... Think they necessarily uh, reached their aspiration because they made it hard on
1: themselves. So uh, we don't need to relitigate Thor, you guys did yeah, plenty okay. of that. But well, I mean, I do think that it's interesting, uh, and 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 probably just to really kind of close this this thread here, the the Howling Commandos they were really their own thing in the comics, and my understanding is they weren't really involved in Captain America's story. Uh, They were more specifically, you know, fighting with Nick Fury in the comics. And so I think what they chose to do is they say, you know what? This group of soldiers has some interesting characters, some clear identities. We can transpose them from their comics into Captain America's just so we can give some faces to the soldiers who are fighting in these scenes so that the audience can click with them and and have five characters that we kind of follow along with Captain America and Bucky, just so it's not five random soldiers uh, every time, you know? And I, I think that's largely what they chose to do with the Howling Commandos. Yeah. Yeah, I think it makes sense. But Pete, you brought up the point about the the guns, that we have some regular guns here and then some Tesseract guns. Why do the? Why does anybody have a regular gun at this point with the the with Hydra? Like they have. I mean, we just saw the factory. It is full of stuff. Full of stuff. At this point, I'm like, why don't they all just have the the tesseract weapons? Like, I was honestly surprised as I watched this again to to remember.
0: Oh yeah, some of
1: these soldiers are just using regular bullets.
0: Why? I think it's because. I mean, first of all, at this point, like a bullet is going to be. Just as good at killing someone. Like the laser gun is great for fear, the laser gun is good against tanks, but like no one's wearing like battle armor. But also, at least the way they show it, and again, maybe I'm giving too much credit here, but the way they show it, like the lasers are very powerful, but they basically shoot like a one shot rifle. You know, a submachine gun is still, you should be able to hit multiple targets when they're grouped really tightly together with a submachine gun in a way you can't with a one shot laser rifle. Yeah. That doesn't matter if your people are all firing warning shots as we've established. But I, So, again, maybe I'm being charitable here, but I think that's the like – in pure combat terms, says the person who has never spent a day in his life in the military but played an awful lot of tactical weapon simulators when I was a teenager. <laughs> like it, it, to me, like it would make sense to have some people with machine guns and some people with – the laser rifles.
1: Yeah, and I suppose it's also like what's most accessible at the moment. Then, when suddenly the the soldiers are, or the POWs have are running free, like what are you going to grab? It's whatever's closest at that point, I suppose.
2: Yeah, right. I feel like we should hear more of the Hydra uh, like soldiers screaming, "Why didn't I grab my pew gun?" <laughs> like I want to hear that in the background.
0: <laughs> Where's my pew pew? At some point, we're going to have to start asking. How much of these choices by Hydra are because of the choices by Schmidt? And that might require us to ask a question or two about the motivations of Schmidt, which I don't know if you've talked about already on this podcast. But I I am not putting Red Skull at the top of the well-written villains list for MCU. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think he is one of the worst. And so there is an extent to which, like, nothing this guy does makes any sense to me. So the fact the arms the soldiers like this uh, – it makes as much sense as anything else he does in any of the movies. So <laughs> sure.
1: Well, speaking of Schmidt, we actually then move into the command center, uh, or the control room where we see that Schmidt has actually finally noticed that, uh, something is awry. He, he sees a monitor and notices on it that there are, in fact, you know, he's, he's got these closed, like a closed, uh, circuit System throughout his whole compound here, which is fantastic, and he is seeing kind of the, all the war essentially breaking out in the compound here and and looking at it and uh the first time he notices and he 's like, "What is happening? I mean, how does this play for the two of you? Do you feel like somebody should have sent a signal before this, or do you i mean I know largely it just happened, so it 's not like you know anybody 's had a huge uh, amount of time, but they have had to get from i mean it took Steve a long time. Granted, he didn't know where he was going, but it took him a long time to get to the barracks. And these people, like they're outside instantly. I'd like to think that at some point there had been a Hydra agent inside who would have noticed them and signal an alarm, but apparently not. How does all this play for you? And, and Schmidt finally noticing what's going on on the monitor here.
0: So this is going to be a tangent, but I promise it's relevant. I've been noticing as we do this that being a guest is great, but when I was one of the hosts... I had in front of me the script that we'd written that would remind me what happened in each minute. And yes, I did watch the minute literally like 30 minutes ago, but I'm not very good at remembering like what's happening in what she got seen. The reason I say all this is that if I had seen that script, I might have decided that right before the one moment that I think is good characterization for Schmidt might not be the time to go on my rant about how badly the motivations for Schmidt are written. (laughs) But the point is, I do think that, and again, here I might be being way too charitable, but I think the one part of Schmidt's character that really comes through is that he has bought so far into this ubermensch, Nazi, I have the power of the gods, I am the Superman, I am better than everyone else is the idea that often comes that kind of megalomaniacal attitude of so I win. I don't have to actually do anything else. I have the power of the gods. I win. My enemies are just going to line up and get shot. I don't have to do any more thinking. And to me that that if I'm being very charitable, that explains the utter stupidity of so much of his plans and of this. So they're just like, yeah, it it, it just his soldiers have laser rifles. Why would you think of any why would you put any forethought into planning out like the fact that what he says is he's so just surprised what is happening it, to me what i got out of that is that all of this happening the idea that someone would come into the layer of the the mighty power of the gods it's just it, it's not thinkable to him it would never occur to him he wouldn't have worried to put alarms but also he's just baffled by this because he, he didn't think it would happen Pete sigh you know i <laughs> I feel like,
2: like, I, I, I know this is one of those, you're right, you're right, I know you're right moments. And, and still, uh, I, I do like Schmidt and I, I like mostly the maniacal performance from, from Hugo. Um, I think it is, insane not to have more pew pews if in a world where pew pews exist and it's hard for me to be charitable about that in that engagement i you know i i don't know that i can i can add more than okay the, it, stupid movie by minute format <laughs>
0: Look, I'm going to keep going on rants to when he disagrees with me, so it's okay to you know speak back if you think I'm going I'm, I'm off base there.
1: Well, I mean, I I do like that. I mean, you know, this is a character who thinks that he has the power of the gods by holding this tesseract here, and and there is an interesting element to essentially this this view that he can take over the world, but that also speaks to exactly that sort of mustache twirling villain who the, like this is the James the James Bondiest of the villains that we've had in the. marvel cinematic universe at least up to this point because i mean his his whole motivation is to take over the world like i mean you know talk about straight out of like the formula that you get in all those characters like that's what he wants to do he uses use the tesseract to invent all these things so that he can destroy everyone and rule everyone who's left
2: right and and i think this is the this is the thing that gets me is that You know, we've already talked about how Captain America is the immutable force in this movie and everybody around him who is exposed to his raw charisma and patriotism changes as a result of their experience with him, which makes it really hard to have a villain because everybody else who comes in contact with him is swayed by his utter goodness. And so Red Skull has to be the comically villainous like of all the villains in order to be completely viable as unswayed by Captain America's patriotic charms. Uh, and so, I, you know, it's the Lex Luthor problem. Like there's always going to be the the canonical opposite of our do-gooder. And this is what we've got. Yeah. I like
0: it. I, yeah. I, I think that's true. And I also think like this is, the, this is the part of the MCU when they wanted to focus entirely on the hero characters, mm-hmm. which you're building up for the Avengers. And so, like you said, I think a lot of these early villains, they're both comically written and, and they're, they're all mirror villains. They're yeah. all supposed to be ridiculous and not sympathetic and have the same power set as our hero to set up the big fight. And Kevin Feige wrote that memo and Kenneth Branagh either never got it or threw it in <laughs> the garbage, because Loki breaks all of that. Like, yes. I mean, Loki's a Shakespearean-level villain, as we talked about. Yeah. But every other villain in the first phase, and even, I think, into the second phase of the MCU, at least until you get to Ultron, is kind of ridiculously written. Yeah. Yeah. And I-, I think Red Skull is one of the worst of those, but but you are right. Um, and granted, this is also the part of Hugo Weaving's career where he hates humans. Uh, Whether it's in The Matrix or in Lord of the Rings or in this, he just hates humanity and thinks he's better than them. And so he plays that role very well, as he always does. Yeah.
1: Well, um, let's uh, pause here because we will be back uh, back in the control room with Schmidt and Dr. Zola to find out what happens next. So let's stop here. We'll be back tomorrow with Minute 63. So for now, Matthew, uh, where can people find more of what you're up to?
0: Uh, theethicalpanda.com, it has all the places where I podcast. Um, I promise there, because I'm the host, I actually try to let other people speak, unlike apparently what I'm doing today, Um, which I apologize for, but please give me free reign. But yeah, so theethicalpanda.com, we have a lot of great podcasts about superheroes, ethics, ethical questions. And we take that pretty broadly. We just did an episode on the ethics of poker because uh, poker is a super... My, my best friend, Paul, has made his living playing poker for 20 years. I think that's a superpower. I don't get it. Um, but we had a great talk about that. We talked about all sorts of fun stuff. Theethicalpanda.com.
1: Fantastic. Check that out. Uh, Matthew, thank you for uh, joining us here. And uh, we'll be back with Matthew tomorrow, minute 63. Pete, thanks as always.
2: Thanks, Andy. And no, clearly, I don't know how to use this thing.
1: <laughs> Until next time, true believers.
2: Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is Spread the News by Anthony Vega, and this season's show art is by Winston Yabo. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, consider doing that for this show.